Why does everyone want to go to Jerusalem? And why is St. Paul so mysterious? And what's up with the Magi and the star? Welcome to the Scripture Commentary Series. Today we are talking about the Feast of the Epiphany. Remember to like, comment, share, subscribe, leave us a review, do all the things. It helps me fight the pernicious and fickle algorithm gods. Also, you can ask me a question and I'll answer it on the podcast. You can ask me by emailing at basicallyrelatedpodcast at gmail.com. So today we're talking about the epiphany and I'll be going through the readings and commenting on them a bit. But before we dive into those readings, I want to give a little bit of background to the Feast of the Epiphany. Now, there's a lot I could say, and there's a lot of history, there's a lot of historical context, everything that goes into it. There's kind of a complicated development of how we came to the Feast of the Epiphany and why traditionally it's on the 6th of January. Now in the new calendar, it's on, I think, was it the second Sunday after Christmas. It is a feast for all those who are not born into the Jewish faith. It's a feast of the Gentiles. So I imagine that's most of us. But this feast recognizes what St. Leo calls the first fruits of the church and the first fruits of the growing church of Christ. It's, it's a feast that highlights the idea that there are now members being incorporated into the believing body that are not Jewish by their cultural background. So the word epiphany means it means a, a self-manifestation or self-revelation of God. And there's different epiphanies and feasts like this throughout the church calendar. We have the baptism of Jesus that will ce- that will celebrate. Christmas is a type of epiphany. The reason why this is called epiphany is, is very particular. It's because of God's self-revelation to the Gentiles in a very different way. So we're working with that background, the background that the epiphany is the incorporation of the non-Jewish world now into the faith of Abraham and now into the faith of Christ. So let's dive into our first reading. This first part of Isaiah, we can kind of break, break up the first reading into two parts. So the first part here is talking about the glory of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the spouse of the Lord, and it's now this this redeemed holy city. He's talking about the splendor and the the brilliance of the holy city. So Jerusalem is completely restored. It had been under siege by different foreign nations, but now it's a glorious city, and it's the city that foreign nations are now coming to to make pilgrimage, and they're actually not only making pilgrimage to, the, to Jerusalem, the holy city, but they're pouring out gifts to the, the the holy city. The second part is where we have this, which is where we'll see the fulfillment of it in the gospel. It, it talks about that there are these foreign nations coming before Jerusalem and before the Lord to empty out caravans of precious metals and, and gold and, and frankincense. So I, I want to highlight a particular idea is why are all these nations coming to, to Jerusalem? Why are all these nations pouring out their goods? So the idea here, it's a, an idea I got from Mircea Eliade, but it's 
called the Axis Mundi, or the center of the world. So the, the Axis Mundi is, is a place that unites the three ancient cosmic realms. So for the ancient mind, there are three levels of cosmic existence. There's Earth, there's Heaven, and then there's the underworld. At the center of the world, at the Axis Mundi, all three of these levels are put into communication. So the center of the world supports and connects heaven and earth. Now, it's obviously a symbolic center of the world. It's not actually the center of the world. It's where it's a, it's a place, a sacred place or a holy place that is believed to have all these places that, that have all these levels connected together. So the center of the world for the Jewish people is Jerusalem. But as we'll see, there's sort of concentric circles to the center of the world. There's the land, there's usually a holy city, then there's a temple that can even go even further than that to the home. And then eventually I would say to the, the individual. So for the Jewish people, the land of Israel is the center of the world. Then you have Jerusalem as the center of the world, or Zion, the, you know, the holy mountain. Then you have the temple as the center of the world. There's a lot of interesting Hebrew traditions about Zion and, and Jerusalem. Uh, one is that during the flood, when the whole world was, was under the waters and the deluge, the, the deluge, the, the mountain of Zion, the Jerusalem was not covered by the waters because it was, it was the highest point. So you often hear this in, in the Old Testament of you know, the Lord's mountain is the highest point in the world. Now, that's, again, that's not meant to be literal. It's not actually the highest mountain in the world. It's meant to be symbolic that whatever is the most sacred mountain is the place where heaven and earth meet and heaven and earth touch. So the reason why there's so much pilgrimage to Jerusalem is because it is a recognition by the nations that Jerusalem is the center of the world. The Israelites have always known this. The Jewish people have always known this. But now Jerusalem, Jerusalem acting as kind of a beacon of light and brilliance is illuminating the nations to show them that this is where you want to be. You know, this is where heaven and earth connect. So you have foreign nations and Gentiles making pilgrimage to the center of the world. There's a lot of, along with the Holy Mountain, along with the Axis Mundi, and pilgrimage is the idea of, you know, the, the journey of ascent up the mountain. So you'll hear about in the Old Testament that these four nations are ascending the mountain of the Lord. They're, they're on a journey to the mountain of the Lord. So since it's the center, since Jerusalem is the place that illumines all nations, you see also a little bit of light symbolism. You know, light in most religions and cultures was a symbol of God, godliness, the supernatural illumination. Of course, in the Bible, it's no different, and the God of Israel is no different. He's showing that you know, his garments, you know, oftentimes his garments are described as light, his countenance is light. You know, in the beginning, in Genesis, God creates light. So 
light symbolism will play an important part throughout our readings and throughout our commentary because it's through light that God scatters darkness as it has here in the first reading. Uh, it says that thick, thick clouds and darkness cover the earth, but Jerusalem kind of scatters that darkness. So what he's saying here is because heaven and earth have touched, now that light has come and scatters the darkness. If we move on to the psalm, what you see here is a continuation of the idea of pilgrimage to the center of the world that we, we saw in our first reading. It's, it's talking about all these, these foreign nations coming to Jerusalem. It says here, Lord, every nation on earth will adore you. He says here, uh, may he rule from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. And he talks about the foreign kings coming and bearing gifts. All of this is, uh, all of this is because God's illumination has come. God has enlightened all the nations and shown them the truth that, in some ways, the Israelites have always known, and that it's that God's glory dwells in His holy city of Jerusalem. And now, because of that, they're they're making their way to the center of the world to offer gifts to the king who dwells there, that this is the place, every other place on earth, you cannot commune with God in the same ways you can commune with him in Jerusalem because his glory dwells in a particular way in Jerusalem. Moving on to the second reading, St. Paul picks up an idea here that he talks about frequently. It's kind of scattered throughout his writings. It's the idea of mystery in Revelation. So before diving into the second reading, before kind of opening up what St. Paul means by mystery. I think a little bit of background, a little bit of historical background would, would be illuminating and, and helpful. So in St. Paul's time, there were something called mystery cults. They were very popular in the, the Hellenistic age and in the first century. St. Paul is a very educated man and Kind of a well-traveled man, and he's from, and he's traveled to some very popular and and wealthy cities throughout the Mediterranean and the Roman Empire. And Ephesians, the place where you know our second reading is going to, St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians, Ephesus is no exception to that rule. Ephesus was a very large and impressive city. Uh, I think around the same around the time of St. Paul, there's about a quarter million people there. It had a very impressive port, which, of course, port cities were always very wealthy, bringing in lots of money, lots of travel. It was a thriving city. And wherever there is a thriving city, wherever there are massive, you know, um, kind of accumulations of wealth, there is no doubt very expensive and impressive temples to the pagan gods. Ephesus, again, no exception. Ephesus had a a very impressive temple to the god uh, Artemis, I believe. And Artemis was a part of this mystery cult, this, this mystery religions. So some scholars think that what St. Paul kind of grew up in is what we might call a mystery atmosphere, that the, the Hellenistic world of mystery cults has kind of permeated his mind. So when Paul St. Paul talks about mystery, it's this is what's working in the back of his mind, this idea of mystery cults. So mystery cults generally were uh, these kind of Gnostic religions. They provided access to certain 
pieces of knowledge that normal people had no access to. They gave certain experiences of rebirth, immortality, some form of salvation, or at least a connection with the deity. So what St. Paul is doing, though, in his understanding of, of mystery is very different. He's working consciously or unconsciously against the popular notion of mystery. So when he says, the mystery was made known to me by revelation, the character of mystery in the New Testament revelation is mainly influenced through St. Paul's writings. Mystery for St. Paul is a decisive decision to save men who have become separated from God by sin. So it's a decision that comes from all eternity, from the depths of God's being, and is hidden from all eternity. This is why mystery and revelation always go together, that there's something that cannot be known unless it is unveiled. This is working very much against the mystery cults, because the mystery cults were much more, I guess, a, a grasping aspect, that they said that through these initiation rites, through these rituals, we can give you and impart to you a special knowledge. St. Paul is saying that there is no ritual and there is no initiation that you can engage in that will give you this knowledge, that it's a knowledge that is hidden in the depths of God's being that God chooses to reveal to us. We cannot grasp it unless God does so. Again, the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as he says in the second reading. So it's this hidden resolve is made manifest in God, but most made made manifest from God, but most especially in Christ. So it's through Christ and his death and resurrection that he brings this gift of revelation to all men. And he call and he and Christ calls men to partake in the divine life by which men are transformed into to children of God. So mystery is this this inner decision by God that can't be known otherwise. It can't be known unless God reveals it to us. So that's why the the character of Christian mystery is always a hidden revelation, and it always addresses itself to faith. Now, going further against popular mystery cults, mystery cults had sort of this I guess, an elite attitude to them. They were for the educated. They were for the upper echelons of society. They could also be sometimes rather expensive. However, for St. Paul, mystery was something once revealed, it was made to be preached. So you might think of, of Christ who's revealing the mysteries of the kingdom to his apostles who then must preach the good news. Or uh, in St. John's Gospel, where Christ says, I no longer call you servants, but I call you friends. So he's, he's revealing the secrets to his closest confidants for them to share. Mystery cults have much more of a secretive kind of gnosis, Gnostic idea that if the secrets of the mysteries have been revealed to you, you are meant to keep them to yourself. You're not really meant to be initiated in a mystery cult and then spread this knowledge and preach it. So... The character of mystery for St. Paul is something that is very contra-esoteric or contra-secret doctrine. It's something that's meant to be shared, something meant to be preached. But once again, it's something that he, 
he or or any of his communities could never have come to. So again, the the Ephesians are probably familiar with this notion of mystery, this the of the mystery cults. So St. Paul is saying to you or uh, saying to the Ephesians that this has been made known to me by Christ, you know, through God or you know, by God through Christ. And it was not made known to other other generations that this was a free decision by God in this time to reveal that Gentiles are the co-heirs and of the and co-partners in the promise of Christ. So, part of mystery is this continually unfolding of salvation. Those things that had been hidden in the Old Testament that are now being pulled back and revealed in Christ. So it's always been God's plan that Gentiles should be made co-heirs in the in the, the plan of salvation. But that's not clear in the Old Testament if you kind of it, it's gradually unrevealed, but if you know if you read the beginning pages of the Old Testament, you don't necessarily see how these foreign nations are going to factor into the the plan of salvation. But what St. Paul is saying is in this time it, by a, a choice of God, now Gentiles are part of the promise. They're, they've they've inherited the kind of the 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 promises made to to all of the patriarchs and now fulfilled in Christ. There's a, one more aspect of mystery which I find interesting or peculiar. So, because scholars wonder, did Saint Paul come across this idea of mystery? through the pagan cults, through his, his own Hellenistic background and education, or was it through the Septuagint, which is you know, the Greek translation of the Old Testament? Because in the Greek Old Testament, the idea of secret is usually translated with the word mystery. So there's this idea of a, of a secret decision by the king communicated to his closest confidants. That's a, that's a mystery. And that's kind of what St. Paul's getting at maybe. And that's where he gets it from is that now those who are baptized, those who have become part of the body of Christ are now God's closest confidants. And to those, he reveals the mysteries of the kingdom. I think there's some good backing for that. Again, you have in St. John, I, can, I don't call you servants, I call you friends. You have even the apostles kind of taking Christ aside and saying, what do these parables mean? What do these parables mean? And Christ kind of opens up for them. He says, the mysteries of the kingdom. So I, I think that's the, the, maybe the more uh, common understanding of mystery is, is a re- revelation of, of secrets of the hearts of, from the heart of God. We even see this actually a little bit in the Eastern Rite, uh, the, the Divine Liturgy, before communion, they say a prayer, and it's something sort of like, or part of the prayer, I should say, says, for I will not reveal your mystery to your enemies. So it, it goes back to this Septuagint understanding, this Old Testament understanding of mystery as that which uh, a, a king or a ruler or a commander revealing a secret that's not to be shared with the enemies. Now moving on to the gospel. So in the gospel we have this is where we have the the famous 
the three wise men, the the magi, the star, coming to do to homage to the king. That whole famous story, you know, you get your three wise men out, you put them in the nativity scene, everything like that. So, right off the bat, from in the gospel, we have that Jesus was born in the days of King Herod. So this is again sort of like in Luke's gospel. Luke's gospel was kind of started off the infancy narratives with in the days of Caesar Augustus and then talks about the poverty of Christ's birth. You have the same thing here of, of highlighting the in the days of King Herod and then talks about the, the poverty of Christ. So there's supposed to be this, that C- Caesar Augustus said that he brought in the Pax Romana, the reign of peace, but he didn't. Christ brings in the true reign of peace. Likewise, King Herod could be called the king of the Jews, but he he wasn't. Christ is the king of the Jews. Christ is the Messiah. So there, there, there's a little bit of a, I don't know, a, a, juxta, a juxtaposition. I can never say that word. Or a, a subversive nature here that you're trying to show is this is earthly power, but it's not earthly power that brings these promises, but it's actually the... The, the promises of Christ that bring, that fulfill the promises of peace and the promises of the, the Messiah King and such. So after that line in our gospel from Matthew about uh, Jesus being born in Bethlehem in Judea, the days of Herod, you have, behold, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem. So, from the east, as, uh, many church fathers talk about this, that it was fitting that our faith come from a place where the sun rises, that, you know, the faith is, faith is the light of the souls. So now we have the new sun, S-U-N, of justice being born from us, from the, that comes from the east, that the light of faith is best exemplified by the fact that these Magi are from the east, from the land of the rising sun. So they, the Magi say that they've, they've seen this star and that they're therefore you know, kind of mystically, as many church fathers put it or interpret it, they are mystically enlightened by the Holy Spirit, by the significance of this star. And therefore they follow it and they, they go on its, on its way. I would like to make a, a brief note on the theology of grace. We're going to get into a little bit about how strange it is that these magi saw the star and went after it. So quickly on grace, it's the teaching of the church. And, you know, if you look back at the church fathers, especially scholastics, that grace always precedes us, that in the moment of conversion or in the moment of enlightenment, we, we experience it as sort of a personal decision that perhaps we are living in sin or we're, we're, you know, we're not living a good life and then we are suddenly kind of awakened and we say, you know what, I can't live this way anymore. I, I need to live a life of grace or I need to convert. I need to turn my life over to Christ, whatever it is. The church teaches on grace that that's, that decision is not possible without grace, that even though it seems like you are not in the state of grace, somehow there's, there's this moment in which it, it's offered to you and because we don't believe grace is irresistible, it's then a free choice. But you don't make any choice apart from grace. 
So when the Magi see the star and then they, they choose to pursue it, it's because of this grace that's that's before them that, that, that they don't quite realize is there, but they could only see the significance because of this, this kind of flash of grace-filled illumination. I just wanted to put that out there. May expand on that some other time, but I, I think that's a, it's a fair interpretation of what's going on. So let's dive into the Magi and who they are. It's some speculation about them. So the term Magi originally referred to a cast of Persian priests with kind of special claims to interpret dreams. You know, so they can sometimes appear as astrologers or astronomers. They kind of looked to the movement of the stars to guide major events. Uh, and we can assume, obviously, that they are Gentiles and they, they weren't um, perhaps uh, Jews living in the East. They don't know where Christ is to be born, so they, they must be Gentiles. So it's, it's not quite clear what we mean by the East. You know, if we take the popular term uh, Magi, which is the closest in the Greek, it might suggest they're from Persia. Some people suggest philosophers, kind of the, pra- the practice of astrology indicates that they're maybe from Babylon. But then the gifts that they bear perhaps means Arabia or somewhere in the Syrian desert. But I, I think that it's purposely vague. I think they just present that the scripture writers, you know, St. Matthew, purposely tr- says that these, these uh, magi are, are from the east because the, the ambivalence of the concept of magi is indicative of what Ratzinger would call the, the ambivalence of religion in general. It's it's they're they're meant to show that they are seekers of truth, that they they they're not you know they're generally philosophers, they're generally astronomers, and they're they're generally wise men, but there's no particular. We're not saying that these people you know Syria or Persia or Babylon in particular came to to Christ, but all of those who are seekers of truth and practice religion in any general sense are are coming to Christ. They're making this movement towards Christ. So Ratzinger also notes we kind of have two concepts of magi in the New Testament. You have those who are religious and philosophical, and they, they seek wisdom in the right direction, and then you have, and that's, I think, what's exemplified here in Matthew. But then you have the figure of Magnus in Acts of the Apostles. So he's the one that kind of pits his own power against the apostles and kind of therefore therefore kind of sides with the demonic. But here, the, the Magi, despite being Gentiles or despite perhaps not knowing Christ, they're not really pitting themselves against Christ. They're actually genuinely seeking who this Messiah is. They, they're, they're genuinely curious about, uh, you know, finding him and worshiping him. So they, they, they come from the East as a sign of, of you know, again, as Ratzinger would call, the, the, the inner dynamic of religion, that it, it moves towards truth, that 
any true search for truth is also a search for the true God. And by finding Christ, by, by using every means available to find the true God, what they what they end up finding is that all of their pursuits are fulfilled in God, and that we you know if we if we call them wise men, that wisdom here serves to to purify the message of sci- of science that that finding the logos, the the true uh, you know the true the true God. Who is the center of the universe? That will purify all their searches that they've that they've been going through. You know, in a very Bonaventurian sense, uh, you know, Saint Bonaventure imagines Christ as the the center of the universe. He's you know the meeting of heaven and earth. He's you know he fulfills all things. That you know Saint Bonaventure believes that you can't even do philosophy now without Christ, that you can't practice the sciences without Christ. And I think what he means by that is that it, it you know, he was critical of, of, of um, Aristotle and Plato. He said they were very good, but they, they ultimately ended in error, that you need Christ to purify your search for truth, you to purify and fulfill your philosophy and to purify your sciences. And I think that's what the wise men represent here is that they have these fragments of truth, but they're moving, they're making this this movement towards the logos that will fulfill not just their religious longing, but also the science that they practice and the, the philosophy that they practice. So the, the key point here of, of, the, of the Magi is that they're coming from the East as a sign of a new beginning. And they're representatives of, of humanity, kind of journeying towards Christ. And that they, they initiate this process that is symbolic for everyone throughout history and throughout time. So that they're not just representative of the East, but of all people who have aspirations for the, for the truth and long and, and have religious longings to be fulfilled in the true God. So they, they have... They represent kind of all religion, all philosophy, all science, and its desire for unity in Christ. So now, moving on to the star, the rising star. What is the star? So there's kind of a great variety of opinions about the star, ranging from the church fathers to medieval interpretations, to mystical interpretations, to scientific interpretations. There's no doubt that the idea of births and deaths uh, of great figures being accompanied by astral phenomenon or, or cosmic events is it's, it's widely attested to and accepted in, in antiquity. So here we might expect the same. You know, there's an astral phenomenon that accompanies Christ's birth. And it's the star. So the star is sometimes interpreted as, you know, physically a new star, uh, perhaps a supernova. That, that's an idea I think Kepler put forth. Um, could be a comet. There's the conjunction of planets of so Saturn and Jupiter. Mystically, some say it was Mary. You know, Mary uh, Stella Maris, the star of the sea. Others, you know, medievalists kind of talk about the 
or those not medievalists, but people who lived in medieval times, interpret the star as a, a symbol of grace. So on one hand, we could just satisfy ourselves with a mystical interpretation and say that the star is a symbol of grace or it was a symbol of Mary. But we could also try to tackle the physical reality of the star, the, the science of the star. So there's there's been a lot of speculation that around 6 to 7 BC, there was a conjunction of planets. I think Kepler and other scientists since then have all kind of agreed that at this moment, Jupiter and Saturn, I believe maybe Mars, had a conjunction and perhaps there was a supernova kind of accompanied with that, that uh, Ju Jupiter and Saturn um, entered, uh, conjoined together and in the constellation of Pisces. So Jupiter, I think there's, we'll continue. Although this is a, a, a physical fact, there is a little bit of symbolic nature to it. So Jupiter is a symbol for the Babylonian god Marduk, and Saturn is the kind of uh, cosmic representation of of Israel. So it's possible that the Magi saw this event as the union of of their god that they understood, and the union of the god of Israel. Gener but more generally, Saturn or uh, Jupiter is seen as the king, and Saturn as as Israel. So the king of Israel being born. Perhaps that's what the Magi saw. You could take it a step even further. Carl Jung talks a little bit about this idea of Jupiter as the king, Saturn as Israel, but then they're conjoining in Pisces as, you know, Pisces is, is represented by a fish that a new era was, was dawning when this happened is the, the era of the fish. This is perhaps why you get a lot of fish imagery in the Bible. He's saying that it's, it's the perfect symbol for the ministry of the new king, the ministry of Christ. I think at least what we can say is that there was some sort of event in the stars that changed and that the, the Magi saw and they interpreted as a... A, a significant religious event. The wise men, they see this star. Then the wise men are led as far as Judea. So this is, we can kind of interpret their, their journey towards Christ as in a symbolic way is they have, by the star, they were able to be led as far as Jerusalem. It's, it's natural. They, they saw, you know, perhaps they saw Jupiter and Saturn and they said, you know, in the form of the star, and they said, all right, the king of the Jews, naturally that would lead them to Jerusalem, the sacred city. However, that was not enough. Once they get to Jerusalem, they need scripture to continue the journey because they say, we're here, but where's where's the, the newborn king? Where can we find him? So we can definitely interpret this as how natural philosophy or any of the sciences can bring us to certain truths, but we need it to be fulfilled by the revealed truth from God. This is St. Bonaventure's point. 
that I was trying to illustrate earlier is natural philosophy is good. The, the Aristotle and Plato, they wrote many true things, but ultimately for them to be fulfilled, they needed revelation. So they, they need Christ to fulfill their religious pursuits. You can go very far without, without revealed religion, but I, I don't think you can get to God just through natural philosophy. That's what St. Bonaventure means. You will run into errors eventually. So same thing with the Magi. They, their natural reasoning, their, the natural sciences, natural philosophy got them to the royal city, but then they needed sacred scripture. St. Gregory says that at the very moment when the Magi came and adored Christ, astrology came to an end. That as the stars from then on traced their orbit by Christ. So the, the fulfillment of what the Magi were looking for in the star comes to an end in Jerusalem once they ask, where is the newborn king to be born? And they consult the scribes. So there's a peculiar turn of events in a way. The Magi get to Jerusalem and they consult King Herod and they ask, where is the newborn king of the Jews? Naturally, Herod, thinking himself the king of the Jews, is a little bit disturbed by this. And he call, you know, they, they consult the scribes and the scribes determine where the new, newborn king is. The, the Herod kind of you know, tries to, to lie to the, the, the Magi and says, go and find where he is because I too want to worship the newborn king. The, the medieval theologian and author Ludolf of Saxony has a, has a good insight on this because the scribes actually figure out where Christ is to be born. They're, they're right. They, they figure it out, and Herod knows through them where Christ is born, yet they don't go to see him. They, they, even though they've found the truth and they've discerned the truth from scriptures, they, they've read them correctly, but they don't go to see him. Why? So Ludolf says here that these symbolize, the scribes and, and Herod at this point, they symbolize people who teach good doctrine but live wicked lives. They proclaim Christ with sound teaching, but they attack him by their evil behavior. I, I think that's, you know, when I, when I read that, that kind of gave me pause because I think today we often imagine that if we have the right belief, we'll be fine, right? That there's the, this understanding that doctrine and faith or maybe doctrine and virtue are the same thing. It's not true. There are moral virtues, there's intellectual virtues, there's theological virtues. You can have great intellectual virtue and have no moral virtue. You can have a great education. You can have all, you know, you can memorize the entire catechism. But if you are uncharitable, if you do not have the theological virtues, you don't, you're not probably going to make it. You're, you're not going to make it to the kingdom. Like it's, it's not enough just to have the right opinion. The, the catechism has a great image of this, and I think it's spot on. That dogma is the lights along the path 
of faith. That dogma is there to guide us and to keep us on the path. You know, when when, when the path becomes dark, you know, this is St. John of the Cross, you know, the, the path of faith is kind of darkness. You have the the lights of dogma to help guide us of when you're unsure. But they aren't the path themselves. They're the lights along the path. The path is still faith. So what Ludolf is getting here, and I think he's correct, is the scribes in Herod knew about Christ, and they knew where he was going to be born. But yet they didn't go because they they didn't actually have faith. They, they you know, in his word, they, in Ludolf's words, under the, they, they wanted to kill Christ under the cloak of religious devotion. And I think that's a, a sobering thought for us is, do we kill Christ under the, the cloak of religious devotion? That we think that having the, the sound, having sound faith, I'm sorry, if we, do we think that having sound doctrine is enough? Or do we actually live a life of virtue? Do we live the virtue of faith? And that's actually our, our backup. Or that's actually what, what, what we cling to, not just dogma. So the Magi ascertain where the king is to be born, where Christ is to be born, and the star reappears, and they follow the star to the town in Bethlehem. So it says that when they, they found the star, they're, they're overjoyed. They're kind of overcome with, with uh, emotion. In the Greek, it's, it's very it's a superlative. It's, it's very powerful. It's that they're, the joy that they feel is in many ways, uh, you know, overpowering. You know, it's like they're, 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 you know, kind of beside themselves is what the Greek is trying to imply. So they come in, they see Mary with the child, and it says here they, they prostrated themselves and did him homage. So the the idea is that they worship him with their entire being, that heart, mind, and soul, their their body, that they 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 lay down. They uh, this is they, clearly what they saw here was that they were worshiping God because the gifts represent that, but then also how they they fell down before him. This is behavior even um, beyond what one might conveyed to a king is this prostration that they they realized that they were in the presence of God truly there's there's a, one figure that's met, uh, that's missed or one figure that's left out of this gospel is Saint Joseph and I think now we have more um, devotional reads of this and it's that Saint Joseph was there but he was just kind of in the background. He was quiet. You know, kind of the, the idea of uh, the silence and hiddenness of St. Joseph, which I like that interpretation as well. But there's a <laughs> kind of a, a interesting medieval interpretation that Joseph was by divine providence not there. He actually was absent. And the reason jo- St. Joseph is absent is so that when the Magi appeared, they wouldn't become confused. That perhaps if they walked in and they saw Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, they might think, "Oh, we have the wrong guy." That this is the human father. This is the this is kind of just a normal human family, and so they might think that Jesus was the son of Joseph, just the human son. So, 
by divine providence, Joseph is absent. He's out of the house. And the Magi are not confused about who they say. They, they see Mary and they see the child and they say, okay, this child could have, could have only come from God. That's, like I said, that's an interesting interpretation. I'm not sure which one I like more. You know, it's, I, I, I do, you know, there's the devotion side of me that, you know, I have a big devotion to St. Joseph. So I, I like that one a lot, that kind of the hiddenness, but the idea that they, there would be no confusion is I think also a kind of a powerful one here. But the Magi come and said they, they, they're overjoyed. They prostrate themselves and they, they worship God here. And then they offer their gifts to to um to Jesus. And the gifts are, as we all know, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And each one of these gifts symbolizes a different aspect of Christ. You know, the gold for his kingship, frankincense for his divinity, and myrrh for his symbolize uh, his death, his his passion. You know, gold was often, you know, something you might uh give to give to kings and out of tribute. Um, you know, you make a gold crown out of it. Um, incense is that which is um, burnt to God. We, we still burn it today. And then myrrh, uh, something to to preserve the dead. So these gifts mystically foreshadow, or if not foreshadow, represent Christ's kingship, his, his divinity, and then also his humanity, that he will undergo his passion and death. After offering these gifts, it says that they were warned in a dream not to return to Herod, so they departed for their country another way. This goes back to earlier when we were talking about who are the Magi, that perhaps they were interpreter of dreams. These dreams, uh, this dream is, is different because it doesn't come from an angel like the one from uh, for Joseph in Matthew's Gospel. But it's it's still a, a divine communication. You know that you know, there are moments throughout the Bible where God is critical of dreams and dream inter- interpretation, especially in uh, the wisdom literature, I believe Proverbs. But it's also in dreams that can be ways for God that God that God communicates. And I, I think the the symbolic read of the fact that the, the Magi do not return to Herod, but they depart another way is, is sort of the idea of, of metanoia, of change of direction and change of heart is they came to Herod, they came to worship Christ one way and having experienced Christ, they do not return the way they came. So uh, our, our, our own personal journeys to Christ, we, we come to him, but yet we do not return to the old way. That's a very popular interpretation from the fathers and and from uh, from the medievals is is the the magi are representative of of all those who come to Christ through various means, but then once you find Christ, you you pour yourself out in a sign of humility. You you prostrate yourself before Him physically and or spiritually, but then having experienced what you have, you do not go back. You do not depart for your country the same way you came. That you you now go back another way. You you go back different. You can think of uh, the hero's journey 
that you know at the the height of the hero's journey is the 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 mystical marriage you know it's there's different heights of the hero's journey but there one of them is the mystical marriage or the the apotheosis the the changing of the individual and from there they you know there's the return back to the homeland but you're you're never the same you know you take a different way back um i'm in the process of rewatching lord of the rings and same thing you know you think of uh Frodo, you know the way Frodo goes to Mount to Mount Doom and the way he comes back are different. He's you know he's changed when he comes back, and so that that's I think the mystical or spiritual interpretation now is that the the Magi are no longer the men that they were when they left from their homeland, and so they they come back different. So I think I will end it there. Again, if you have enjoyed this content, you enjoy this podcast, please uh, support me by liking, comment, sharing, subscribing, all those different things. And if you have any questions about anything at all, I'll answer it. I promise. Just email me at basicallyrelatedpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.